KGIM Team RE. This is episode 314. You know, what did you do for joy before drugs and alcohol? And I guarantee you, if you go rediscover that, you'll pick up the guitar, you'll pick up the paintbrush, you'll put on the yoga tights, you'll do whatever it is, and boom, that childhood joy will come out and you'll just capture it. And it's, it's for fun and for free. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Greg. Greg has been sober for 26 years and he is from Los Angeles. I heard Greg's story on another show and I knew I wanted him to share his journey here with us at Recovery Elevator. His story is powerful and inspiring. Before I get going with the interview, I wanted to let you all know that registration for our upcoming Bozeman retreat will be opening March 1st. The first few days of registration will be exclusive to Cafe RE members, and on March 6th, registration will be open to the general audience. Team, I am just letting you know that you are not going to want to miss this event. We're going to have workshops. We're going to do some yoga, meditation. There's going to be breakout rooms, dance parties. It's going to be a blast. I attended the Bozeman retreat in 2019 and I had an amazing time. So I really hope that this upcoming retreat in Bozeman is going to serve as the opportunity that I've been waiting for to meet more of you in person and to just create more memories together. Also, one more update. Our Cafe Ari monthly membership fee It's going to be going from $19 a month to $24 a month starting March 1st. As we continue to grow, we're adding more components to our membership, including multiple online chats per day, funding independent meetups, and we're also saving up for a retreat center. So take advantage of the last few days of the month to sign up at the $19 price. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. It's now been several weeks since the new year, the dust has settled, and I wanted to check in on something that I've been thinking about. In my mind, the new year brings excitement, not only because it is presented to us as an opportunity to start something new, but also because for a moment, things seem to be a little bit more in our control. Even if that sense of control is simply an illusion, it just feels like we are in charge. And what do I mean by this? When we make lists of goals, intentions, and resolutions, we feel in control. We think of what we want to achieve and we create strategies, timelines, targets, everything that we want to achieve. We think about our game plan to achieve it. All of that feels really empowering and it makes us feel like everything is entirely up to us. I don't know if it's just me, but feeling like I'm in control and knowing outcomes makes me feel relieved. Is that weird? What I'm trying to get to is that maybe by now, those first few weeks of motivation and empowerment are now shifting a bit more into the unknown territory. Like when you are swimming from shore to shore and you've made it far enough into the water where you can't see your point of start and you also cannot see your finish line. And when we can't see outcomes, we tend to worry. When you don't know how your friends are going to respond to your decision to quit drinking, when you don't know how you're going to make it past your next craving, when you don't know how you're going to make it to your wedding without cheering with champagne, or you don't know how to go back to a restaurant for a corporate dinner without ordering wine, when you don't know who you are outside of your identity as a wine connoisseur, then you worry. We worry, we overthink, and we get stuck in thought patterns that make us worry even more. Melody Beattie says, our biggest question is often, what is going to happen? This question blocks us from functioning effectively today. It keeps us from doing our best now. It blocks us from learning and mastering today's lessons. Worrying about what's going to happen is a negative contribution to our future. Living in the here and the now is ultimately the best thing we can do not only for today, but for tomorrow too. Things will work out if we let them. And if we must focus on the future other than to plan, all we need to do is affirm that the future will be good. Do you get sucked into worry? 
I know that in the past, when I had some time away from alcohol and then chose to drink again, it was partially due to worry. Not knowing the outcomes of my sobriety made me go back to drinking. I knew what would happen if I drank again, and I didn't know what would happen if I stayed the course in sobriety. So my brain just wanted to feel some sort of familiar outcome, and that is when I went back to do some field research. It wasn't until I was ready to sit in the unknown a little bit longer that I was able to move past day 100. Everyone's journey is unique, and for me, getting past day 100 was always a trick. I tried to worry a bit less about the big picture and focused more on living my life day by day. If I was already doing the hard work of not drinking, why add more resistance to the moment by pouring a bottle of overwhelm on my day? Does this resonate with anyone? When you find yourself wondering what's going to happen, try to approach it differently. Try to let life surprise you and trust that it will. If I've learned something from interviewing people, it's that most of the time, our worries are far greater than what tangibly happens in our life. And more often than not, the outcome of feared scenarios ends up being a positive one. All right, eso es todo, my friends. And before we hear from Greg, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe Ari almost immediately after I found it and was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things that I realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community, people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that truly understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across some bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of our monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you all there. Greg, how's it going? Good to have you. How are you today? I'm doing good, Odette. Thank you so much for having me on the Recovery Elevator. I, I know we met through another uh, podcast, uh, the Recovery Happy Hour with Trish, and uh, I, have a, I have a new saying that I like to carry around, good people know good people. I like that saying, and I 100% agree. I was very, very moved when I heard part of your journey on Trisha's podcast. And when I took over Recovery Elevator, I'm glad we connected because I knew I wanted to have you on. And I'm really grateful that the day is here, that we're here chatting together. And I just can't wait to share your story with our audience. Let's get right to it, Greg. When was the last time you had a drink? Oh. <sighs> My last drink was November 6th, 1994, and it was a six-pack of Moosehead, two joints, and a bindle of cocaine. And that is almost 26 years ago, and you still remember everything in detail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things I'm blessed with is I have a photographic memory. And in sobriety, it's really a superpower because when we're sober, we do remember everything, unlike when we weren't sober. Uh, you know, my bottom was so low okay, that I had to remember the night before. I had to remember that it was alcohol was the gateway to the pot. The pot was the gateway to the cocaine. And then the, all three of them together was the gateway to my chaos. You know, and I, and like many of us, I thought that that math problem would uh, get better. And as you know, it only got worse. A hundred percent. Yeah. And give listeners a little background before we get into the nitty gritty of your story, Greg. Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? Mm -hmm. What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? So up here in Los Angeles in a little nook known as Pacific Palisades, 
I have a, a beautiful wife, Jennifer Champion. I have two amazing, magical daughters. Uh, my oldest is Elise. She's 10 years old. And she is into gymnastics, skateboarding, and what else? She did tell me the other day, she goes, Papa, I have a secret. I said, what's your secret? She goes, you can't tell anybody. I said, what? She goes, I want to be president of the United States. And uh, (laughs) and I I, I teared up because, uh, you know, uh, I think she'd make a great president. And my youngest, Annabelle, is seven. She's into soccer. She's into Roblox and uh, all these TikTok and all this kind of stuff. And uh, they both own my heart. And what I do for a living is I am a high-end recovery coach who also owns a couple high-end sober livings that cater to professionals and C-suite executives. We also have apartments, and the name of the company is called Start Up Recovery. And I'm an entrepreneur. I also invest in an advisor in many different startups. And what I do for fun, you know, here's what I do for fun, Odette, is I do for fun what I did before drugs and alcohol. And so when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I used to body surf, I used to skateboard, and I used to drink mint chocolate chip milkshakes from Baskin Robbins. So what I can tell you I do for fun is this. I body surf, which I just did this past Sunday with my, with my kids. Uh, I skateboard with Elise occasionally. And just last night, we went to Baskin Robbins for mint chocolate chip milkshakes. So that's what I do for fun. I love that. It sounds that you've found a way to come home to yourself. Yeah, I call it recapturing the joy recapturing the the joy. And, and what I say to you and your listeners and anybody uh, out there is, um, you know, what did you do for joy before drugs and alcohol? And I guarantee you, if you go rediscover that, you'll pick up the guitar, you'll pick up the paintbrush, you'll put on the yoga tights, you'll do whatever it is. And boom, that childhood joy will come out and you'll just capture it. And, and, and it's it's for fun and for free. That's 100% true. It's all about having fun. And we often say on here that it has to be fun. This journey has to be fun, right? And and a part of that is rediscovering what we like, who we were, and just finding that joy. So thanks for sharing that. Tell me, Greg, what happened? Give listeners some background on your story with alcohol. Tell me about this journey and how you realized that alcohol wasn't serving you and what got you to stop drinking 26 years ago almost. Um, So I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, and at four and a half years old, my father was um, killed in a drunk-on-drunk car crash. So right away, I I, I realized the power of alcohol. Mm -hmm. It it took my father away. And what it did for me, Odette, was I was now being raised by a single mother, and I definitely felt different at school. Uh, There's only one car in the garage, only one income coming in. There's no dad there to throw baseball with you. And I didn't have an outlet. And so my ism showed up in violence. And what I mean by that is I was a bully. I was someone who um, had a short temper, uh, was sensitive. And I used that, that violent part of me. And if you knew me in person, Odette, you know that's not who I am today. But that's what this scared little boy uh, was. And then all of a sudden around age 12, 12, 13, I discovered uh, alcohol. I discovered pot. And I finally found that that medicine that took my, my shame and my pain away. And I began to just drink and use and go to Tijuana as a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old. I thought I wanted to be an adult. You know, I had horrible hangovers. And the disease is progressive. I chose a, a school, Arizona State University, because that's where some professional drinkers and druggers went. And really, my alcoholism did not fully manifest until I, I got out of out in the real world. And what happened was on my graduation night uh, from college, I got my first DUI. Uh, and the unmanageability that's talked about in step one was right there. But I wasn't ready for the 12 steps or any programming uh, there. I had to skin my knee and, and bump my elbow a few more times. And what happened was this sort of pattern. I would drink alcohol. That would open the door for cocaine. Then that would open the door for pot. And it would open the door for bad decision-making. And so between ages 22 and 25, I got arrested eight times uh, in that time. And they all had one thing in common, Odette. And let me, let me ask you, what do you think that one thing in common was? 
Cerveza, alcohol. <laughs> yes, yes. Cerveza, cocaine, uh, marijuana, uh, ecstasy. Always, always was Greg plus drugs and alcohol equaled uh, chaos. Mm. And, uh, you know, Odette, I, 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 here's the insanity. Uh, I went to Mardi Gras uh, during that time and I walked on Bourbon Street and I found this big Irish cop and I walk up to him and I say, hey, I need to know the rules of this place because I plan on having a good time. He says, don't piss in the streets and don't fight in the streets. Well, Dad, I got arrested twice in 24 hours and I'm going to let you tell your listeners. I'm going to have you guess what two things I got arrested for. Once again, pee pee on the street and you probably got in a big old fight in the middle of the Amen, street. sister. Amen, sister. And, and I, I don't know if there's so much pee pee in the street, I, I, but it was definitely, you know, it was uh, it was liquid leaving my body for sure. Yeah. But um, but but the the insanity uh, of being told the rules and when we drink and use, you know, um, we 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 throw out those rules. And you know, when I work with people, I say you're allowed the alcoholic thought. You're just not allowed the alcoholic action. And so what I what I want to wrap up in terms of my story and my rock bottom was that. I found some lower companions uh, late at night, 4 a.m. And, you know, these lower companions, they know how to get drugs around this country. And so basically I was enlisted by them to help expand their network to the East Coast using my college connections. And so we began shipping large amounts of marijuana from San Diego to Boston and Connecticut and D.C. And uh, over time, uh, those shipments became bigger and bigger. And as I became more integrated into that entrepreneurial uh, programming, I had a nice house in La Jolla, a couple cars, and it was a nice life. But I will tell you this, every time I got on the flight, I had to get so high and so drunk because I had so much shame about being a drug dealer. Mm. You know, this was a good kid from San Diego. Uh, my mom had remarried and had a great stepdad. I went to private Catholic school, I had a college degree, you know, and, and, and a lot of promise. And I decided to choose the shortcut. And so what happened, and I get, I get arrested with 50, 50 pounds of pot, and I get in front of the judge, and the judge says to me, um, son, I see that you're a good kid. What happened? Mm -hmm. And like many of us who are in a fog of alcohol and drugs, I utter these three words, I don't know. Because I don't know that Greg. I don't know that Greg that blacks out, that fogs up, that, that, that doesn't show up on time. And the guy standing in the courtroom was a scared little boy who was, who was facing five years in prison. Because here's what the judge said to me. Here's what he said to me. He says, oh, he says, Greg, here's what I do know. If I see you in my courtroom in the next uh, six months, I'm going to give you these five years hanging over your head. And Odette, 18 days later, the disease showed up again at my doorstep. And this is where I drank the six pack of Moosehead. I smoked those two joints I talked about earlier, and I and I did a bindle of Coke. And I drove up the coast and went to a party. And uh, a stranger came out of nowhere and says, "Hey, uh, do you have any bumps on you?" And me being a people pleaser, me me having to tap into my codependency of always wanting to be liked, I Been said, there. "Come on down, right, right, been there, right, Odette." And so all of a sudden, I now have a new friend. I take him down to my car, and I um, pull out my Duran Duran CD case. Now, please, Odette, don't judge me on my music taste back then. This was the <laughs> early 90s. But this was the CD case that had all those scratch marks on it, you know, from prior nights. Yeah. And I put out two lines, and I put it in front of him, and he pulls out his San Diego Police Department badge. Oh. And uh, at that moment, I am defeated because all I can hear is the judge saying, five years, five years, five years. And so this next chapter of my, of my story is really the providence moment. Um, the next morning I wake up in the cell, I'm in the fetal position, and uh, I hear a voice in the corner say, Greg, there's a better way. Greg, there's a better way. And I pop up onto the bench and I look up in this corner and I don't see anybody, but I still hear the voice and the voice says, call your mother. Now, Odette, when we're in jail or any sort of circumstance, the last person we want to call is our mother. And so, but I, it says it one more time, call your mother. And so I do. I call my mother from jail and she says these words. She goes, go to church. She goes, Gregory, you know how moms always call your full name, Gregory, go to church. And that night 
after getting bailed out, I went to church. I went to six o'clock mass, the St. Brigantine right there on um, Cass Street. And uh, the priest says after mass, hey, we're going to do confessions after uh, mass. If you have anything to confess, you can pick one of these six priests. Well, I go behind door number two. And in that room is a beautiful older man with white hair and laser blue eyes and a white cloak. And he says, son, please sit. I sit down and he says, tell me your sins. And I begin to tell him my sins. And the first sin out of me is, hey, father, when I smoke pot, I show up on Christmas day on December 27th. When I drink a lot, I go in the bars and I hurt people. When I do cocaine, I date three women who have no idea I'm dating them all three at the same time. And when I do all three of those, I fly large amounts of marijuana to the East Coast. And he puts up his hand. He says, stop. He says, son, do you think you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? And I say, no. And then Odette, I do what, what we call the AA pause. I paused and I thought, and I looked at him and he gave me that AA look, you know, that sponsor look, <laughs> you know, like you're, you're, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. Yep. Yep. Right. And, and, and I say, I said, why do you ask me that? He goes, well, all your sins have drugs and alcohol in them. Do you think you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? And I say to him, I say, wow, you're the second man in my life to ever say that to me. And he goes, well, who was the first? I said, my, my stepfather. And he goes, what was your stepfather's name? I said, Walt Janicki. The priest grabs my hand and looks at me in the eye and says, I was Walt Janicki's first sponsor. Holy shit. <laughs> and um, <laughs> 26 years later, I still get choked up because if that did not happen, I'm not here today. Someone was looking out for you, Greg. Yes. And so um, I said, I said to myself, I said, my God, I said, whatever this man tells me to do next, I better listen to. And so this beautiful man, um, whose name happened to be Father Bill Wilson, by the way, the same name as the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's a priest in La Jolla, uh, and your listeners can certainly Google and look him up. And so Father Bill says, listen, your sons don't belong here. They belong four blocks up at the Alano Club, and uh, there happens to be an AA meeting, and I think you should go. And so that night at 7.30 on, uh, on 11-7-1994, I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I identified as Greg. I couldn't say alcoholic. You know, I just couldn't. But the Father Bill gave me his phone number. I called him the next day, and he says, come to my office. And I went to his office, and he was very cordial and very nice. And he says to me, I just want you to do three things. I want you to stop using drugs and alcohol. I want you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I said, that's good. So does the judge. And he's like, I want you to take boxing classes. And I'm like, boxing classes? He's, yeah. He goes, because when you do the first two, you're going to have so much resentment and anger, you got to put it somewhere. And so before I left, he goes, you look really scared. I said, yeah, I'm really scared about going to prison for five years. I'm really scared about going to jail. And he says, Greg, I'll make you this promise. Greg plus drugs and alcohol equals jail. If you take drugs and alcohol out of the equation, I promise you, you'll never go back to jail. So Odette, in nearly 26 years of sobriety, how many times have I been to jail? Nada. Zero. Nada. And so that is the beginning of my journey. And what I think about when, again, I've been, I've had drinks put in front of me. I've had people suggest go in the bathroom and do cocaine. I've had all sorts of things over the years you know, put me at, at the doorstep of using. And I just think to myself, you know, that God moment was so big that if I drank, I'd be slapping God in the face. And so like it tells us, it all starts with a higher power. And I just find it really cool that a man of the cloth pointed me to Alcoholics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a new version of God. It's a different type of cycle. Yes. Yeah. Right. A different type of cycle, right? Yeah, I, I want to thank you for your vulnerability and sharing your story. It's so profound. And I, I love that you said, and you're honestly sharing, I didn't identify as an alcoholic when I walked into that meeting. And I'm sure there were a lot of thoughts in your brain at that moment telling you to just get out and like, I don't belong here. I'm not an alcoholic. And you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. But that moment that you had, which was so much stronger, and you just leaned into it because you had to be so uncomfortable. And I want to ask even like, were you withdrawing? How was, how are, how are those 90 days, 90 meetings in box? How did that treat you like? And how, how did you feel? Do you even remember? So what I can say is, um, I know I had a court card 
So that was that was something that kept me accountable. And I didn't realize what I didn't realize what accountability was then. I just knew that, well, if I get this court card, maybe they'll maybe they'll give me a year off my sentence. You know, I had no idea, you know. So I, you know, I guess you would say I was looking to get the heat off, which many of us do, you know. But what happened at around day 30, 31, the pink cloud showed up and I felt healthy and I felt clear and I and I was uh, not in so much shame anymore. I found some older people because when I got sober in 94, there wasn't a whole lot of 20 somethings in the program. So I found these pseudo uncles and these pseudo aunts who would take me for coffee or give me a little advice on the street just outside of a meeting. So they kept me, they kept me grounded. But um, one of the things that was profound for me was the boxing. I got in phenomenal shape and, and it wasn't about getting in the ring with people. It was just like, doing boxing lessons. And so I'm a big proponent of exercise. I think that the dopamine that comes from exercise helps us addicts and alcoholics balance in those early days. I will say this, and this is for anybody who's out there who's young, you know, none of my friends were getting sober. And what I can say is I lost a lot of friendships. I had to say goodbye to people from high school and college. And I definitely said bye to those lower companions because nobody understood alcoholism at, at that time in 1994 they didn't understand the power of addiction and they're like oh you can you you can you can what why don't you just try being sober for lint you know mm-hmm. why don't you just take 30 days off and luckily i had this strong sponsor father bill father bill became my sponsor and uh, we began doing the steps and i was accountable to him and i did my first four step in that in those 90 days and I certainly will say this, I, I, I was not thorough with my four-step Odette. I definitely left some stuff in the closet, and that affected me later in my sobriety. But it was the best version of that four-step I could do. And, and I'm a real proponent of, you know, if you get over that fourth and fifth step, you have a way better chance of making it than you don't uh, and, and getting stuck on step three. So um, that's kind of my first 90 days. Once again, thank you for your honesty, because we have explored in past episodes this idea that when you subscribe to recovery and you realize that you have to do things differently, paths aren't perfect. And I really always like double clicking on people who mention I wasn't completely honest the first time around or it took time. It took for some people, it takes relapse and every journey is so unique. But I really like highlighting that the best may look different. The best yesterday can look different tomorrow. And and sometimes you have to dip your toe in the water and the next time you'll go further in, it just, you have to start. And it sounds like you were doing the next right thing as it was happening. And then the cool thing about recovery is that every day is a new opportunity. So you, you get a chance to go at it again. For sure. And if I can just make a, a little metaphor on relapse, I, I never did relapse, but what I, what in the business I am, I've certainly seen plenty of relapses. And, and what I want you to do, Odette, and your listeners is picture a salt shaker and it's about two thirds full of salt and then it spills over. Okay. And there's some salt that, that spills out on the table. Right. And then you put, you put it back up again. Right. That is a relapse. The spilt salt is your relapse, but the majority of what you learned in Alcoholics Anonymous with your sponsor and your recovery and dealing is still in the salt shaker. And you just, you have to start over, but you don't have to start over from the beginning. And that's just my take on relapse. And I I can't tell you how many times the light goes off for people that I work with that go, oh, okay, I get it. Because they don't lose, they don't lose that they read the big book twice. They don't lose that they did the steps once. They don't lose that they, you know, they got one or two years, right? It's still part of their story. And so I always want people to think about it as being a sugar shaker or a salt shaker. And we're just spilling the sugar and spilling the salt. I love that metaphor. And yes, you don't lose the awareness. You don't lose what you learn. I, I always say fail forward and, Mm, 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 and mm. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, it, it, it is all part of your journey. And with a lot of those oopsies, relapse, whatever you want to call them, sometimes it's even not even going back to the substance, but going back to dishonesty or something that still is part of the behaviors that we used to do. And, and you're just aware of it now. And 
that clarity and that going back to your honesty and and that accountability no one can take that from you so i love that you do talk about that with with your team and and people that work with startup recovery and i want to also touch on what you said about friendships that there's this quote that is out there not just for sobriety but for for change because change is hard mm-hmm. but it says your new life is going to cost you your old one and mm-hmm. that's the quote that came to my mind as you were talking about losing friendships and change is hard and and sometimes what's comfortable it's is what's affecting us negatively the most so we have to really i think have a motivation other than you not going back to jail when your friends were talking to you about potentially going back to drinking or you don't have a problem other than not being in jail <laughs> and having a strong spo- strong sponsor what other bigger mm-hmm. motivations did you have to stay the course one thing I, I I did have in favor with me, and I got this from my mother and my my stepfather, was a good work ethic, and so I had desired to have a career in sports and entertainment with a last name like Champion. I thought that might be a good fit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so what I did, Odette, is early in my sobriety, as I moved to Los Angeles, I found a home group at the Log Cabin in West Hollywood. And then when my friends were, were wanting to still go out and drink and use and carouse, I decided to stay in on Thursday nights and work and write on scripts. And on a Saturday mornings, when I knew my friends would be hungover, I would go into the office. I worked at NBC and Fox early on in my sobriety. And I'd go into the office and I'd print those scripts out and organize my mailings. And, and also the phone calls were coming around noon. Hey, let's go grab brunch. Well, if you look at it on Thursday nights, if I was working from eight to midnight, there's four hours there. And if I was working from 8 a.m. to noon, there's four hours there. And so what happened for me is I was putting eight additional hours into my passion, which was becoming a writer and a producer in Hollywood. And I can tell you, Odette, if I said to you, I need you to put eight hours times 52 weeks, you'll have a house built, you'll have a business built, you'll, you'll, you'll have something on the other side of that. And, and so that's how I came up with our slogan for startup recovery, shifting addiction to passion was through my own early days of doing that. And what I was able to do by, by basically becoming a workaholic, you know, was build a pretty good career. And, and, and I'm proud of that career. And I would never have had that career if I, if I, if I didn't put my ism towards my passion. I love that. Uh, one of the biggest complaints I think of people is I don't have time. And I always love challenging that because if if you are on this journey with us and if you mm-hmm. go sober, you'll you'll find there is a lot of time that was wasted. And even for people who don't struggle with addiction, it is just time management is a skill and it all adds up the com- compound effect. It looks like that's what what you did. All of those hours compounded into big results, you know, baby steps. And that's what this journey is all about. Amen. And I love that you brought up wasted time. I, I tell people all the time, I said, you know, if you think back to your drinking and using, it's all a waste of time. I, I can guarantee it. Not one of those drinks I took uh, afforded me the house I have, afforded me the family I have, you know, like it, it, we have nothing to show for. It. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, as well as I do there, it was fun. It was fun with problems, and then it was just problems, right? We did have some good times, but eventually the wheels came off the train, you know? And and then it just ended up being a vicious cycle, as you said before, of just wasted time. Yeah, and exercise. I'm so glad that Father Bill prescribed that. I, I, yeah, I struggled yeah. with depression as well, and my psychiatrist on my antidepressant prescription always adds exercise, and I was like, I'm, you know what? I'm just so glad that you actually prescribe it because I actually believe in this so much. And it, and I often say exercise should be prescribed because it helps so much. And for me, it's such a source of energy and such a source of inspiration. And I found now that sobriety has allowed me to live an inspired life. And a lot of the time, exercise is a catalyst for that inspiration for me. So I'm glad that we share that. Yep. And I, and I do notice uh, you exercise like no other. Uh, (laughs) uh, So, so if I, I guess if I can just be your coach for a second, you are addicted to exercising and guess what? You're not going to die from that. You're not. 
I love it. I start my day with it. And I, I'm recently, because of Joe Rogan and his podcast, I got this whoop strap that I wear around my mm -hmm. wrist. And it actually mm -hmm. tells me when to slow down, when to not go crazy. And I also am addicted to sleep as well. So I go hard, but then I also rest hard. And, and I do think it helps my mental health. So I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. Yeah, no, and, and, and sleep is important. And I, I went to a doctor a few years ago, and he says, as, as, as high as you run, you need eight hours of sleep. Yeah. You, you just do. You're, you're not a four or six hour sleep guy. And so, you know, we have to listen to the experts, you know, you know, and, and I think you've heard this before, the smartest person in the room surrounds himself with the smartest people. Yeah. And I often say, like, if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, too. Because oh, I, <laughs> I love that. And, and how many new alcoholics do we know that think they're the smartest person in the oh room? Oh, my God. Yeah. So right? you, you yes. have to stay open and stay curious. And I want to yeah. I want to keep learning always. I have a, a question for you. And you mentioned at the beginning of sharing your story that drinking and your violent behavior when you were a kid and just being like the bully were mm -hmm. your coping mechanism and you had a lot of pain. How have you transformed and processed a lot of the pain that you had in your early years? So what happened was I had done four, four steps over my years of sobriety. And a friend of mine came up to me in the room and he goes, you're blocked. I said, what do you mean I'm blocked? He's like, I can see you're just blocked. He's like, I see that you can get frustrated quickly. I see I, you call me up and you, you're frustrated with your, with your employees. You're frustrated with your wife. You're frustrated with the driver that's next to you. And I think you need to do some additional work. And I said, what do I need to do some additional work around? And he says, you need to get unpack the backpack of shame. And I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? He's like, it's four-step work, but deeper. And he, I'm telling you, he harassed me. He would call me. He would... Uh, show up on my doorstep because he he was so like he just one of these people that just knew that if he get, could get Greg Champion unblocked, Greg Champion could help other people. And so finally, I relented and I I said, "Come over to my house. We're going to do what you're going to ask me to do." And here's what he did: he got a legal size paper, he wrote the sh the word shame at the top of it, and he gave me a pen. And he goes, "All this, all the things that are still in your Pandora's box, all the things that are in your backpack of shame, I need you to write down and tell me tell me them." And these, these were the things I had left off prior four steps, mm. Odette. And they were around violence. They were around money. They were around shame. They were around a childhood trauma. And I wrote them down and I shared with this man. And what happened was, was this process. I uncovered, I discovered, and I discarded. And what this man did was he gave me, he gave me tools to fix those 19 things that were on that piece of paper. And he gave me a way to make amends. So like I shot out some um, uh, lights at a church when I was 10 with my BB gun. And I had shame around that, you know. And he says, next time you're in Phoenix, I want you to put a $100 check in an envelope and put it in the, in the, in the, in the mailbox. And, and you'll be done with that. And so what I thought was, here's, once again, a fellow from Alcoholics Anonymous came into my life and got me to got me to take my program up a step. And what I can tell you is all that anger and all that angst went away. I stopped getting out of cars when people honked their horns at me. I stopped being short with people uh, at the gas station when they did this, that, or the other. And it really was the relief. So for me and for what I would love to give you and your listeners, it's time to unpack the backpack of shame. And I would encourage you to find someone you trust to write down the word shame and write down the things that are still in your Pandora's box. And Odette, one of the things I would like to bring up is part of my 26 years is that I've created a program called the Recovery Playbook. And it's 12 videos of lessons like this, unpacking the backpack of shame. And I walk you through each one of these. There's the digital scrub. There's unpacking the backpack of shame. There's the mask you live in. There's the 10 intentions. And really, this one, the shame one, is really where you move the meter. Because what happens is we all, I don't know if you know who Gabor Mate is. Uh, from the realm of hungry ghosts. Yes. And, and the, Canadian, the Canadian doctor. 
So he says all alcoholism and all addiction stems from childhood trauma. And what I can tell you is that, yes, that was on my list of shame. And for most addicts and alcoholics, there is some pain, shame, trauma, drama from their childhood they've never dealt with. And they wanted to medicate it through pot, cocaine, and booze. And I agree with him wholeheartedly. It wasn't until I did that list that that anger and that angst and you know that violent provocation left me. Yeah, it sounds like you also forgave yourself. Oh, for sure. Odette, one of my favorite quotes, and please, please post this, is from Mother Oprah, whose mentor was Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past can change. Wow. For forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past can change. And so, Odette, we all think that the DeLorean is going to pull up and we're going to hop in, right? And we're going to go back in time and hope to change some shameful event. And we really can't. All we can do, like you said, lean forward and move forward in our lives and use our scars as stories to help others. Yeah, we have to get unstuck from the past. And that's really hard. But really, there is nothing we can do other than keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. I like that quote a lot. I'm definitely going to pull it and post it. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Do you get any cravings, Greg? It's been so long, but do you get any cravings or triggers? So Odette, here's my, here's my line. The obsession to drink and use has left me. The obsession to obsess has not. And so what I want to say is in my sobriety, that obsession to drink and use probably left between year three and five. But the obsession to eat, the obsession to um, uh, resent, the obsession to shop, the, the obsession to lust, the obsession to uh, sit, in, sit, sit in suffering, that will show up. And if I allow that obsession to happen, what I know will show up is the same disappointment that, that showed up for me after a good night of drugs and alcohol. If I don't do the work on the resentment, or if I run up my credit card bill shopping, or I go chase the girl who's not my wife, these outcomes, if I don't play the tape out, will affect my life just like drugs and alcohol did. And so what I do when these isms show up, I go right back to the first step. I'm powerless over lust and my life has become unmanageable. I'm powerless over shopping and my life has become unmanageable. I'm powerless over this resentment and my life has become unmanageable. And that single exercise keeps me in check around obsession. It is the thoughts. It is the obsession. Yeah. Long after we stop drinking, sometimes that's what keeps showing up. I love this tool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Greg, what are you excited about right now? What possibilities that are in your horizon have you inspired? I'm excited. I really like this. I really like podcast. I like human connection. You know, like I said earlier in the, in the, in the podcast, like you and I have never met, but I just know good people know good people. And I know that if I'm down in San Diego, you and I are going to grab lunch. Maybe I'll have my girls and you'll have your kids. And, and, and there's this connection that we have through recovery. So I'm always excited about recovery. I'm excited that, that I too started a podcast um, called the recovery playbook. And my podcast interviews sober entrepreneurs, people who have crashed and burned, were living underneath truck stops, you know, and now have built up beautiful businesses and lives out of their recovery. And they have a playbook to share. I'm excited for us coming out of COVID and what that's going to look like. You know, um, if I may tell you and, and be, speak a little French here, my, my wife says to me the other day, when this COVID thing lifts, we're going to travel the fuck out of this planet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, so I look forward to that, you know, but I, I just love your question on this. It's such an optimistic question. And what, what I can say, my, my best friend, Anthony Salmon, who's a San Diego resident says to me, he's like, your greatest superpower is your optimism. He's like, you've always been so optimistic. And I think that that is what makes me a, a good recovery coach. It makes me a good mentor. Uh, it makes me a good sponsor. Here's what some old timer told me once, Odette. If you want to know how bad somebody was when they were drinking and using, 
is how good they are in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and 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 I'll give you part two of this is that my favorite prayer is the St. Francis prayer. Lord, make me a channel. Right. And so I start my day with that prayer. Lord, make me a channel. But if you take the left side of that prayer, darkness, despair, sadness, right? That's who I was when I was drinking and using. And then you go to the right side of the prayer, hope, love, courage, right? That's who I am today. And so I see you as this beautiful mom and entrepreneur and loving wife and woman in recovery. You are the right side. You are a walking version of a St. Francis prayer. Oh, that just gave me chills. It's it like you said, it's what happens when you when you start walking this path is people start showing up and you start connecting with people who are willing and able and humble enough to see things differently because the world is full of possibilities, even amongst COVID and even amongst our biggest struggles. And I'm so excited for your podcast. I'm going to have Liz drag the links onto the show notes because it sounds an, like an awesome project and talk about possibilities. I mean, you have guests sharing about what their life has made possible on each episode. So that's amazing. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and, how, and I just want to tell you a little story. On the name Startup Recovery, I was leaving my media and entertainment career in 2016. I was asked um, to uh, teach a class in entrepreneurship at USC. And I have a beautiful uh, man there, Professor Patrick Henry, who's my mentor. And I had this idea for, you know, bringing entrepreneurship and recovery into rehabs and sober livings as a coaching business. And so I went there with him and I said, I, I gave him the business model and I gave him the pitch. And he says, well, he says, champion, here's what I know. You know, recovery and, you know, startups. And all of a sudden we wrote that down and then we moved it. We switched it around to startup recovery. And we really do see every client as a startup or a turnaround. And uh, we bring entrepreneurship into, into our programming here. And that all came from me doing startups, being an entrepreneur, teaching and mentoring young people. And, you know, what makes us unique is that we have the recovery playbook um, as a curriculum. We have uh, me as a coach with 26 years. And then every Thursday night, we have sober mentor night. And that's when we bring somebody in um, who has long-term sobriety and long-term success. And these are people with famous last names and what we like to be able to say is, hey, clients and alumni, they were once in a dump just like you and look the life they built built out, you know. So, yeah, that's that's us in a nutshell. So inspiring. Thank you, Greg. All right. And we've reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Yes. All right. If is you there, can answer it? these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Okay. Okay, perfect. If you could talk to Greg on day one or a younger version of Greg, what would you say to him? I would say drugs and alcohol are a waste of time. And, and I would say, here's why. Time is the most precious commodity we have, Odette. And I would explain the importance of time. What is your favorite ice cream flavor? I think it's going to be mint chip. but Mint, mint chocolate chip. <laughs> Delicious. And I'm glad that you get to share that with the family. I think one of my favorite parenting sober moments is that they can share anything I'm eating and anything I'm drinking. We can all share. It doesn't matter. There is no mommy drinks only. I love it. I love it. <laughs> what book are you reading right now, Greg? I am reading Epic, which is a story of how all of us, all of our narrative tale, like your story, my story is all part of the world's story. So Greg has a chapter, Odette has a chapter, and just what's great, it's an empowering book because here's why. When all of us feel like we have no place in this world or we're not meaning anything, we do. Our story is part of the chapter of the overall big book of, of the world. It's called Epic. Epic. I like that. We're all woven together. Mm -hmm. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Is... People ask me all the time, uh, how do you get 26 years of sobriety? I've remained willing to be willing. 
And, and what I mean by that is the program I worked in the first 90 days and the first two years is not the same program I work today. I've added breath work. I've added sound bath. Um, I've added uh, hiking. I go to um, outside therapy. I am willing to try anything because what I feel is that our recovery tool belt is ever-changing based upon our circumstances. So my advice to anybody is remain willing to be willing. Beautiful. Before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if lying. Wait, say that again? You may have to say adios to booze what? You may have to say adios to booze if, and you can fill in the blank. All right, listeners, you may have to say adios to booze because you'll die. You'll die. And you'll die tomorrow or you'll die 20 years from now. The disease of alcoholism and addiction, guess what? It's undefeated. It's, it's one million and oh. It's like getting in the ring with Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, and Sugar Ray Leonard. You're never going to win. Thank you so much, Greg. This was really powerful. Thanks for spending this hour with me, and I can't wait to air this. Thanks for joining our podcast. It was my absolute pleasure, Odette. I, I, I honest to God, you are one of these people who I can't wait to meet in person because I just know. <laughs> our vibration is is aligned. I love the work you're doing. You are real. You're authentic. Um, the recovery elevator uh, has quite the new captain uh, running the ship, and um, I'm just grateful that you are a, a, you are a testament and an example of what a woman in recovery looks like. And thank you for having me on. Um, I, I'm so blessed for these moments that we get to connect like this. Yes, thank you. I feel the same way. Let me know next time you are in San Diego. And I can't wait to meet you and the family. Thanks so much, Greg. Okay. Take God care. bless. Bye. Very well, Team Ari. That's a wrap for our interview today. And before I say adios, I want to challenge you all to stay grounded in the present moment this week. Some of my favorite ways to stay grounded and come back to the now are going out for a walk with my dog, Charlie, walking barefoot on the grass, perhaps doing a brief meditation, blasting music and dancing like crazy, drinking a cup of tea, or simply touching whatever surface I'm sitting on. Sometimes I get lost in my thoughts and I forget I'm just back home in my office sitting on a chair, you know, so I just ground myself by touching whatever surface I'm on. We get caught up in our thoughts and we forget that we are right here right now. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, staying in the present moment is the best thing we can do for our future. Have a great week. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. seeing of who you are not, not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. It can't be thought. Your inner purpose is to awaken.